What's up, everyone? Welcome to Destination Radio. Uh, it's me, your boy Dan Evans. Again, Nathan, uh, Kieran, continue their time at Her Majesty's pleasure. Now, throughout the COVID pandemic, we've done regular news rounds updating you all, which you know, eventually tailed off as it looked like the virus was under control. However, in the UK, we're now back up to you know around over six thousand new cases, which is the highest since May. In Wales, you know, we obviously peaked in April. Then in July and August, cases went down to single figures or zero new cases. Then at the end of August, it started going up. And now we're apparently approaching, you know, second wave or second spike. Uh, before tonight, you know, from the public health data, I was going to say there were about you know, 280 odd cases last week. But then now according to ITV Wales, it shot back up apparently to 389 new cases in the last 24 hours. This is a Wednesday, the 23rd. And that's really back up to similar levels that we saw in April and May. So the peak in Wales was in April, you know, with 391 cases. So the last 24 hours, we're, you know, taking the disease as a whole would represent the second highest amount of daily cases since the pandemic started. However, there are significant caveats. So in Wales, deaths don't, you know, touch wood, seem to be rising. Uh, the majority of cases seem to be in the, you know, the, the middle-aged groups from, you know, age 20 to 60, rather than the older group, which are more prone to, to sort of to come into the disease. So whilst in April and May there were similar cases, we also had high levels of deaths, which doesn't seem to be happening now. I mean, although it is very important to note that people are still dying of it. You know, there were two deaths on the 16th of September, for example, and then it's been about one a day per day or every other day for the last week or so. And equally, hospital admissions for COVID are down at the moment. So Public Health Wales say the weekend in the 13th, you know, we're up to 31 people admitted to hospital who are positive. There are now 53 people in hospital across Wales tested positive for COVID, of which five are in critical care wards. So, you know, again, whilst cases are up, percentage of people getting it and being hospitalised for it seems to be quite low. Anyway, as the country enters a half-assed lockdown amid this, you know, second spike, panic and confusion are obviously once again setting in, thanks to possibly the most disorganised and confusing public health messaging system of all time. Different rules in different places, pubs staying open, but groups and houses restricted to six and so on and so forth. Anyway, it's understandable that people are starting freaking out about it. So in order to obtain some clarity, we turn to the experts. I'm delighted to be joined by our good friend, Dr. Dan Howden. Dan's a health economist and a big data specialist at the University of Leeds. He's been studying the infection rates of, and COVID more generally at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. He recently wrote a fantastic article on COVID health messaging in The Guardian as well. And he's a long-term friend, long-time friend of the podcast. So, Dan, welcome. It's great to finally have you on, mate. Hello. Nice to be uh, here. Right then, mate. So, uh, what on earth is going on? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, it's kind of hot, hot and where to start, really. I suppose there's a few ways that we can, that we can think about that question. The key problem that we have at the moment is this what on earth is going on is possibly the question that everybody is asking. And in a sense, what on earth is going on is the answer to the question. It's, it's, it's very hard to know exactly what this government is sort of attempting to do, really, at the moment. The strategy has been extremely unclear all the way through. The messaging has been completely changing by the week, by the day even. Restrictions have been imposed on local areas, imposed nationally without very much sort of explanation or apparent kind of evidence base or justification so yeah uh, it's a, it's almost a rhetorical question what what on earth is going on i mean if you want if you want to kind of if you want to think about the sort of specifics of that i mean the picture at the moment is quite a quite a number of weeks probably about six weeks and again we we did one of the cbm articles about this cases were rising and cases sort of were fairly persistently rising for quite quite a few weeks so from about the 22nd of July, I think we thought that we should have sort of expected to see a growth of uh, of deaths of people in hospital, 
because cases had been increasing. That didn't really happen. What's been going on for the last couple of weeks is we've obviously seen this this increase in hospitalizations and an increase in deaths. That's kind of where we are now. I think the sort of the 70 average of deaths, if you try to kind of get a rough picture of things, we'll probably run at about 15, 20 a day would be a kind of fair estimate, I would say at the moment. Hospitalizations started to increase at the start of September, then perhaps maybe start to level off a bit. It's pretty unclear at the moment exactly what the picture is. I think this is a real kind of characteristic of, of the of the pandemic, really, that inherently the, the situation is always very dynamic and always very uncertain. I think there's been far too much, quite honestly, made of trying to predict what the, what the future is rather than sort of trying to understand where we are now. I think that, you know, if, if you look at, for instance, charts being put, put around by the chief medical officer and chief scientific advisor, uh, their press conference this week, trying to predict, well, okay, if cases keep doubling like this every seven days, then we'll have 50,000 cases a week by October. I mean, that's a prediction. It's based on, it's based on a lot of assumptions. I think there's a, there's a real danger of, of going too far with these predictions. So, yeah, the situation that we're in now is that maybe 15, 20 deaths a day, hospitalizations are probably rising. We don't really know where we're going to be in a week's time, I think. I think it's a probably fair, a fair summary of things. Well, your article for in CBM... Yeah. You were talking about, you know, rising cases and yeah. lower you know, mortality or fatality, yeah. which is, I guess, the paradox and, and maybe makes this sort of spike look a bit different from yeah. the first uh, wave. So why might that be happening if it is happening? <laughs> it's a really interesting question. And it wasn't because I knew I was doing this as such, but I was, I was kind of walking down the road last night, being at the supermarket. And as I was coming back, I thought what might actually be nice rather than me writing loads of articles is if I try and write something that tries to kind of explain what's going on. So if we think about the kind of relationship between cases and deaths, I know, I know you said at the at the start there that um, Wales were, were kind of reaching the kind of levels of numbers of cases that were so fairly early on in this. What's really important, I think, to bear in mind here is the kind of testing behaviour that was carried out. And this does tie in with, with the sort of recent situation. Back in March, April, basically, in order to qualify for a test, you had to have a kind of fairly rare characteristic, whether that's you've recently travelled to Wuhan, you've recently travelled to Northern Italy, you've been exposed potentially to someone who had, or you're very, very sick and you're actually in hospital. So what was happening really with the cases there, because there were so few of them being done, back then there was a very, very high kind of mortality rate arising out of, of those cases. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the very early stage of this pandemic, actually, once you, sort of, once you try to adjust for the time lag between being diagnosed and dying, the case fatality rate was probably something like 60%. It was something incredibly, incredibly high like that. Yeah. Now, more recently, what happened going through sort of mid-summer-ish, we started to do a lot more testing. And we also started to do fairly, very targeted testing, actually, as well. So, for instance, in areas like, uh, like Bradford, like Leicester, we were really, really testing lots and lots of people. So, whereas in March and April, we were only testing highly symptomatic people, people who were in hospital, or we were testing people who we thought might have had an exposure we're finding quite a high proportion of them were testing positive or rather the people who were testing positive were likely to be more sick and to actually die as a result but because going through the summer what we're doing was testing more and more people we were testing more and more asymptomatic people ultimately finding cases of people who were actually fine we were finding people who were testing positive but there were a great proportion of them were young a great proportion of them were asymptomatic 
So as you say, that kind of paradox that was the apparent paradox that cases are rising, uh, but uh, deaths were falling, was a behavioural change, really. Because what we were doing, really, was completely changing our behaviour about testing. As a result, we were finding more cases. It wasn't that more people were infected. It was just that more cases were being were being detected. Now, what's happening now is, if you like, a kind of third phase where cases are still rising, but this does appear at this time to be a kind of where definitely is a kind of genuine rise that we're seeing an increase in hospitalizations and, and an increase in deaths. If you want a kind of like rough picture of this, that as I say at the very start of this, the case fatality rate, so the proportion of people who tested positive who died was probably something like about 60%. Uh, we haven't published them yet, but we, we reckon something like 90 plus percent of people are, uh, in, in older age groups who were testing positive were actually dying. That fell to about, I think our lowest ever estimate that we got was probably about three weeks ago, and it was something like 0.7%. So one in about 150 people who tested positive were dying. Because what we're now finding really is people who are genuinely kind of sick, people who've got a genuine prospect of death, unfortunately, that case fatality rate is looking something like well, something like 1% at the moment, maybe just under 1%. So in terms of the age profile, that was another thing you yeah. did explore. I mean, it seems to me, and we, you know, you've, you've written about this on Twitter, it seems yeah. to me initially... The spike in deaths and high mortality rate and, you know, and the amount of deaths in care homes yeah. is kind of because the British government, Welsh government, other governments, you know, the US, rather than actually shielding those who are going to be most vulnerable, they allow the virus to just pass straight into the care homes and, yeah. and cut um, people like a knife. Absolutely. I mean, this is a real a kind of source of like irritation for me, to be honest, because the two kind of key strands to the government sort of apparent, like, well, not apparent, uh, announced explicit policy they talked about you know allowing the virus to spread so there was the kind of herd immunity strategy yes, very yes, much yes. inverted commas there but also the kind of second plank of that in addition to allowing the spread was to protect the vulnerable now the issue was never the virus spreading i mean viruses do spread that, that's a kind of like a given as much as you can mitigate that the virus is going to spread by far the most important thing really in this was to protect those vulnerable groups and that's where the failure was and again i mean we can we can talk about other countries approaches afterwards but I think they've been very honest in, for instance, in Sweden, in, in Stockholm in particular, they had an absolute disaster in care homes. The, lots and lots of people died in care homes there. And, it's, you know, this has been something that has been acknowledged and this has been something that's been acknowledged as a failure. I think in this country, we've got nowhere near that. I think one, one thing that I, I said on Twitter last week and I've said a couple of times, care homes are almost kind of passed under the radar. It's been something that's sort of pinned on the government. And as much as I don't want to kind of excuse this, like, appalling, disgusting government for anything, Care homes themselves are, you know, quite a lot of them are privately operated. We are yep. profit map. We've got profit making care homes. I mean, if you want an example of how far they've avoided any scrutiny, can you name me a single care home provider? Can you name me the CEO of a care home? Can you name me any details about these care homes? This has just been kind of accepted as a sort of, you know, oh, there's been a disaster in care homes and a sort of vague recognition that that has been the fault of the government. Well, yeah. To, to some extent and in fact it's been if, if we're going to look at the sort of government responsibility for what's happened in care homes a large part of it comes down to basically entrusting the care of our most vulnerable people in society to, to profit making companies and that has been not just the Tories that has been you know this is something that the you know the, the Labour government allowed to do as well if you look at the history of some of these I can't I can't remember which one it was I think there might be four seasons or I'm probably going to get sued by for saying that I'll, I'll, I'll check which one it is one of the um there's one of these really big care home providers if you look at the, the history of their ownership they've been owned by sovereign wealth wealth funds yeah, yeah. by 
by venture capital firms. When they go bust, the, the banks take them over. There's absolutely no stability in the ownership of these, of these things, which is obviously what's going to happen if you entrust the, the private market. Ultimately, the failure in care homes is so long term that because we've entrusted this to, to profit making companies, their best interests are obviously not necessarily served by keeping these people alive or looking after them or yeah. you know, actually providing them with a good standard of care. It's been an approach in this country to basically just lock up our most vulnerable people, our oldest people, and just leave them to, to whatever these private companies decide is a kind of appropriate standard of care rather than, you know, ensuring that this is sort of socialised and provided, you know, according to need and a sort of reasonable standard of care. Yeah, it's a hidden a hidden scandal. It's also, I mean, I won't go in now, but it's one of the reasons I've always had a, a beef with Mark Drakeford as this, you know, progressive bloke, yeah. because when he was health and social care minister, he was absolutely happy you know, to preside over the privatisation of care, even when there were multiple reports written saying this has to change, we need a national care system. And he's come out saying, you know, it, it's going to be operated for profit for the foreseeable. And, you know, social care is devolved in Wales. And it is, it's something, as you said, that is, it, it's just an, abs- an absolutely yeah. appalling scandal, the way all the people are treated and just hived off into these uh, for-profit abominations, essentially. I mean, absolutely. So I, think, I think this is the thing that, you know, it's almost like, it's kind of no words for it almost saying, yeah, you know, what we want to do is to protect the vulnerable, except what we're going to do is leave it to this, these profit-making care homes. We aren't going to actually take any particular, you know, active steps to ensure that, for instance, that, that entire network is socialised or something like that. I mean, I think one thing that is a really a, a repeated observation I think I'd make about this is so much of this is kind of long term. People yes. obsess over what decision was made on the on the 5th of March or the 9th of March or the 13th of March. I think I've annoyed people on Twitter, actually, who've been kind of insistent. What if Corbyn had won the election? Well, I'm sure there would have been a lot of good policies. There would have been, for instance, I'm sure, paid sick leave. There might have even been a socialisation of the care home sector. Well, I think more than anything, there would have been a sort of a degree of, uh, of care for what was actually happening in the country. But ultimately, Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister in December never mind presiding over a parliamentary party that would have tried to wreck him and a, a, a parliament that would have opposed everything he tried to do. Never mind any of that. But with the best will in the world, he couldn't have reversed the effects of, you know, 10 years of austerity. He, there isn't a kind of magic wand here that, that repairs the, the hideous damage that's been done in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's not talked about enough, is it? As this is a manifest, a horrible manifestation of everything that's yeah, um, been laid. I think this is it, that, you know, if, if you look at the outcomes that, that we've had, it's sort of, it is it is that kind of like, I mean, people talk about, you know, second waves and this, and I don't want to kind of trivialise the concept, but this is almost a second wave of austerity deaths. Mm. That, you know, that, that it's a virus, it's going to kill people, it's going to kill people, irrespective of whether you've had austerity for 10 years. But the way that the kind of social fabric of this country has essentially been torn apart in the last 10 years has meant you know local councils don't really have the kind of ability to cope with things i mean i'll give you i'll give you an example someone i know works for works for gateshead council and was told this must have been end of march if you recall the government on a friday thursday night maybe announced we're going to have all homeless people um housed by the weekend well hang on after 10 years of being in government you've done absolutely nothing about this and then suddenly you say to a council on whom you've imposed absolutely massive cuts. All right, you've, you've now got seven seven working hours to solve the homelessness crisis in in your borough. It's just it's absolutely ludicrous that you, that you know that so much of this is trying to find short term fixes insofar as that's even been tried to like horrendous long term problems. 
I'm not saying we sidetrack because we will. We do need to talk about austerity um, and yeah. the effect it's had on the NHS. In terms, just briefly, in the I guess the second wave and some of the interesting questions that people yeah. have had for us, which we talked about briefly just before we started recording. I find it confusing because obviously it looks like in July and August, you know, when cases go down to zero, it's like, well, have we eliminate, you know, we've eliminated community transmission. Where's it, you know, where's it come back up? Does it emerge because lockdown restrictions have eased and people are going back to work? I mean, I think I do. This is this is definitely a point at which I need to caveat things by saying I'm not an epidemiologist, etc. As I, again, I think I mentioned at the start of this one again source of a lot of annoyance really has been people trying to mouth off about things when they like manifestly don't have a clue what what they're talking about. I don't mean mem- sorry, I'm not doing a Jen Williams hipster analysis thing here. I'm doing like you know a, a people with apparent bio credentials who you know have been very very happy to like leverage those credentials into you know I am the oracle on on COVID. I mean, I, I suppose the the most obvious thing to say in reply to that is that we were still finding cases. We're still finding. I think I can't remember what they actually went down to at one point. I mean, obviously it was it was it was down to under a thousand, but I can't remember actually how far below that. So apparently, it looks about mid July we're down to maybe about 500 cases a day. Yeah, yeah. So it never really kind of went away, if you like, in, oh. in that respect. It, there was obviously still kind of ongoing transmission. Yeah, yeah. I think probably without without kind of getting into like the whys and wherefores of flu, because one, uh, I'm not as I say, I'm not an epidemiologist. Uh, infectious diseases generally, rather, I'm not an epidemiologist. Uh, and you know, two, I think that the knowledge about this is perhaps not as sort of uh, as strong as people might imagine. We do know that infectious diseases are seasonal. That you know that the infectious diseases, if you look at if you look at the kind of winter months, the autumn months, we always see an increase in hospitalizations and deaths from respiratory diseases. In 2017-18, there were 50,000 excess winter deaths. This was something that I was never even aware of, that, you know, that we'll have these huge numbers of deaths. Obviously, not, not all of them are necessarily like, um, respiratory, but quite a lot will have been. Um, we do, there is a kind of seasonal pattern to, uh, to respiratory illnesses. Now, that, that potentially is part of it, though it does strike me that it's perhaps a little bit too early for that. I mean, I know people on Twitter have had interesting theories about Storm Francis forced people inside, which, again, I think is a potentially an interesting point. And I think this ties into more to kind of behaviour, doesn't it? That part of the transmission is ultimately about people's behaviour. And again, this is not sort of like shaming individuals or whatever, assume, yeah. which waving the big waggy finger as the FBPA legends are on Twitter like to do if they see someone kind of you know sitting down in a park or whatever that you know they want to send the army in but you know um people's behavior does change over time it's just very very hard to maintain the kind of levels of things that we've been asked to do and especially when these things are just constantly changing when i can you know i can speak from my point of view everyone i know including including me quite frankly is just so sick of this yep. constantly changing restrictions that i think ultimately all right as in as much as people are so you know staying within the law or, or whatever yeah, yeah. people have kind of come up with their own like common sense about this and i think insofar as that happens that's fine but also i think a lot of people have got so sick of this that they just are oh, right I, I can't be bothered i'm not doing any of it so you know i think you know ultimately this kind of we've got this rule of six and then if you go in greater manchester there's about 20 different sets of rules depending on what bury you're in people yeah. are so sick of this that the behavior is kind of i, I don't know what to do kind of like sucking off of the entirety of it now i think the real worry behind that is that you know there is reasonably good evidence that the things that we're doing at the start of this like hand washing like maintaining a distance like you know the message that's as far as they completely disappeared just stay home if you're sick these really kind of basic and simple things that ultimately are fairly easy to comply with i yeah. mean it's 
not a particularly onerous restriction to say, you know, wash your hands, to, you know, to say keep a distance, uh, stay home if you're sick. All of these things are fairly light touch behavioural things. And it's the kind of collapse of them, I think, that, that is a kind of real worry. So, yeah, so as I say, in terms of why have kind of cases risen, partly, perhaps potentially it's a start of a seasonal cycle, although maybe it is slightly too early. Partly it's going to be kind of people's behaviour change and people kind of wearying of these restrictions. But, I mean, I think I do want to say at this point that I don't, I, I'm not seeing any of that with any particular, I wouldn't kind of identify this is 70% of the cause, this yeah. is whatever. But those are kind of obvious things that, that I think are, are sort of discernible, really, from whether, you know, whether it's kind of anecdotally or, or whatever, yeah. I lost my shit over COVID in yeah. a way, you know, the only thing I can think, you know, analogous to the way that, you know, the most hardcore FBP people yeah. did over Europe. The first time I was like, whoa, this is what it's like to just completely no, yeah, yeah. lose it. I mean, we will talk about the public health messaging. Mm. For me, so much of that was triggered by the fact that Boris actually comes on TV and says, like, your loved ones are going to die, which, like, yeah. necessarily yeah. triggers, you know, the worst existential crisis in no, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, with the Welsh government refusing to like shut down the, the rugby game and and, and so yeah. on, yeah. it's the creeping absolute horror and terror that you think, well, these people don't actually know yeah. what they're doing or they don't care, and then you just start thinking, well, you, you're on your own, and that, you know, I definitely did lose my shit, and I I definitely did become like, as you said, you know, the not not quite calling the army. No, 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 absolutely, yeah, lock yeah. it down, lock it down, like losing it. Um, then I think what happened is like, you know. You go through COVID, you know, I started working again. But but the other thing was, it's like, once it seemed like community transmission was down, yeah, potentially a common sense, as you said, d- decision yourself to go, right, well, if I maintain these normal things, social yeah. distancing and wash my hands, yeah. if community transmission is down, I'll be unlikely to get it and pass yeah. it on. So I guess the issue now is, like, you know, if community transmission is back, which it, you know, it may well be, yeah. then, all right, now is the time to actually be smart and become a bit more reserved. Because I think, like... A lot of people I know, you know, after what three, four months of lockdown in July and August, it's like, well, we can go back to the pubs. Mm. Everyone went back to the pubs because we were told we could, and also, as you said, we were getting sick of it. And because you can make an, you know, a rel- relatively educated, informed decision about where I will, this is what's happening. Now, yeah. community transmission's back. I think that changes things personally. You know, you want to probably, going to probably change my behaviour somewhat mm-hmm. and maybe become a bit more cautious because people stop caring. But yeah. this again brings us back to the. The public health messaging yeah, which is what you, and it does come a point where you know like you you just check out because you think it changes every day it's absolutely chaos yeah. no one knows what's going on there's an obvious government tactic in in the uk and in wales now uh, in england and wales to to pass the buck on to oh it's these idiot people not respecting you mm. know our, our laws but then it's like well you've actively told us to go back to the pubs you know you've incentivized eating out and going into places and you know basically told people to go out to work and the messages change all the time. And, you know, obviously individuals being blamed rather than like mentally awful public health messaging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems to have caused absolute chaos. And it, it gets to a point where it's like, well, I'm, I'm just not <laughs> A, checking out and then B, I'm just. Again, I think that like, I think this is another one of those things where it's like worth revisiting, really, the kind of uh, the government messaging around March and April that I think kind of what whatever you sort of think about initial strategy, et cetera it's worth kind of like calling these people on the things that they said and the promises that they made and the things that, you know, they said were either aims of policy or principles guiding policy. I think there's, well, at least two of them that that I think are, are worth revisiting. But the first of these is one of the key principles that they said was kind of guiding policy was that they wanted to ensure that they had 
a sustainable message or a set of a set of policies, a set of behavioural change that they thought was sustainable in the long run. And I know that there was the kind of you know the behavioural science stuff that was talked about that you know and I mean as much as behavioural science is perhaps questionable in in a lot of respects and unevidenced in a lot of respects. I think the idea that a simple set of messages is easy to comply with for a long time isn't kind of wrong. I think, you know, irrespective of whether you think you could publish it, an academic paper proving that, I think that's a different question or whether behavioural science has proved that. I think that, you know, I mean, I can speak, I mean, I suppose I can speak for myself as a human being, that, that you know, I think I think it's not wrong to, to say that if I don't have to, like, go on the government website every day and check, you know, as of 5.30 today, what the rules are going to be, if I know already, if I have a simple set of messages yeah. that, that I can kind of comply with that I don't really need to think about, I don't think it's kind of wrong to to say that that you know that would have been a sort of sensible way to go about things, even though we have a kind of um, it's necessary to kind of respond to changes in the situation. The sort of chaotic way in which this has been done is absolutely unbelievable. I think as you say there, the the example you give about you know. The eat out the help out scheme see oh go to the pub go to the pub and then now we're saying oh actually no the pub's got to shut at 10 o'clock or we're saying uh, go back to work go back to work and now it's no actually no no within two weeks you should yep. be um, you shouldn't be doing that again if you think of longer term stuff at the very start of this the face masks thing it was you know but face masks why would you want to wear them it's a complete waste of time and now you have to wear them in the pub if you you know i think as, as, as the restrictions are written that you should be if you're between sips of a pint then you should be putting a face mask on you know this complete like not just changes, these not just like minor changes, which would be irritating enough and hard enough to keep up with, but these total about turns within the space of weeks. It's the exact opposite of what they promised at the start in terms of a sustainable and, and sensible and kind of long-term message that they'd be able to sort of roughly keep in place, maybe with some tweaks along the way. Just these screech and handbrake turns every two weeks it doesn't strike me as a sort of like sensible way to run public health messaging. For me, from my perspective, it just causes absolute chaos. It, it introduces panic no, um, yeah. and it introduces some sort of, as you said, like fatigue and people let their guard yeah. down. And it's just going to, it seems to me, it's just going to be really damaging. Yeah, I mean, if you thought about like panic and, I mean, you know, I'm sort of, you can probably tell, I think there's people listening and probably telling from the northeast. And um, so my mum and dad went to visit a relative outside of the northeast on, on Thursday. And there were local restrictions introduced in the northeast on Friday morning, I think. And I just got a text from my dad saying, oh, can you, just, can you just give us a ring when you've got a minute? I was like, yeah, all right, anyway. So I was speaking to him, and he, he thought he was breaking the law. He it was potentially breaking the law by being out of the northeast of England. Now, because these things are just being sort of introduced with no real explanation of just... And I think more than anything, actually, with the kind of force of law behind them, or people think they have the force of law behind them, that... I don't know. I mean, I, I do fairly strongly believe that none of this should really ever ever been a kind of criminal matter. And I think there's been a lot of, you know, people on the left. I don't, I don't want to become a Nick, Nick Cohen type wagging my finger at the left. But, you know, I think there's been a lot of people who haven't perhaps been concerned enough about the, the kind of the way in which we've handed huge emergency powers to the most right wing government in my lifetime. The extent which this has happened in, in any case, you know, the impact this has on people, whether the, you know, people kind of try to keep up with the law and becoming so kind of worried about the think that by being away from their house, they're breaking the law. I mean, the mental toll of this that is really, 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 really high, I think. And it's potentially, I think it's to a large extent, really being overlooked, the extent to which that is the case. In terms of what is actually being proposed at the moment, kind of like a, what, a, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it, like we said, like a half-ass lockdown, mm. a partial lockdown. 
it kind of like a lockdown which also keeps the economy yeah going i mean how would you characterize it i mean i think this is the thing that again I'm, i've been very very much against certainly get about the kind of use of the term lockdown and in general the really sort of extreme measures i think the thing to, to say about it really is that again if we go back to march and april the the goal of government policy the state of goal of government policy was if you remember the, the press conference where they had the slides um balance and witty were, were talking through the you know they were presenting potential graphs of how the virus could progress and the message was we want to flatten this curve what we want to do is to ensure that nhs capacity wasn't overloaded now again if we think back to the end of March, um, me and my boss actually were just sort of doing some little kind of toy models in Excel, um, just trying to work out at what, at what point we thought the intensive care capacity could be overloaded if things were to proceed. Um, I shouldn't really pin this. This was, all, this was kind of my work. It was something we're, we're chatting about. I, I was doing this and I got there about April the 8th. And I thought at that point, if things kind of kept going as they were, uh, the entire ICU capacity of the United Kingdom would be full. And then, like, the next day, what you've got is hundreds of people trying to get a bed who were just dying in hospital corridors. That You know, that there was that real threat back then. Now, the reason why that the kind of lockdown was initially imposed, to go back to that, was to stop that happening, was because we had such uncertainty about what measures actually worked, whether it was, you know, was it being primarily spread by aerosol by droplets, by people, you know, um, by surface transmission and what was doing it, in what context it was likely the case and, you know, unventilated places or whatever. Because we didn't know that, a lockdown is a very blunt instrument. And the idea there is that we don't really know, so we're just going to stop everything. And in the meantime, we're going to find things out, we're going to build capacity, we're going to do whatever. So I guess in terms of talking about lockdown, it strikes me that that has to be a very, very extreme thing in extreme circumstances where you don't know what's going on. You just need to slam an emergency brake on to, to stop this happening. And that was what happened then. Thinking about what this is now, I'm really keen, to be honest, to not use the word lockdown and it's kind of describe what this is in terms in terms of measures. And I know that's almost trying to use a hundred words where we could use a couple. I think that you know, seeing lockdown itself is a bit of a kind of flattening term that encompasses all sorts yeah. of things. Because I mean, I, again, I think this is something that really, really needs to be remembered. And I think, you know, I mean, I do a middle class job. job I, I work at a university. I work in an office, and I can sit. I can sit in my flat and work at home. That's not really a problem for me. But if we talk about lockdown. There have been millions of people in this country who've been doing customer facing stuff. People have been working in retail. People have been working in care homes. People have been working in health services. People who have been essentially doing jobs that can't be done remotely. There hasn't been a lockdown for them. There hasn't been a lockdown for them at all. These people have been ultimately doing more dangerous things. These people have been working in care homes, working in the health sector. They've been in retail jobs where they've been facing hundreds of customers a day. There hasn't really been a lockdown for them. And I think there's a real danger in talking about lockdown that we kind of assumed that that was there was this sort of cease of kind of any contact for to stop the yeah. transmission at all. And that one, that wasn't the case for everybody. And two, we don't really want to do it. Uh, there's a really kind of dangerous, I think, a really unhelpful sort of dialogue about this that sort of centres, you know, if you are against sort of restrictions here, then you're only bothered about the economy. I mean, there are a lot more things, that, you know, than that, really. If we think about the kind of mental toll about people isolating, the in fact, just the health outcomes, the mental health outcomes, the physical health outcomes of not being able to kind of go out. So, yeah, again, that's a, a sort of long way of saying I'm fairly opposed to the to use of the term lockdown. What we've got now is a kind of set of restrictions, really, that are aimed to on the face of it to reduce kind of household mixing to to stop that happening there's also these additional measures that have been put in in england i think it's the same in wales isn't it if you've got the 10 p.m curfew as well in yeah, yeah. 
it strikes me as, as quite odd. I mean, there was a, a government, I think there was a statement in the Commons where, or an answer to a question in the Commons where a minister said they've got good evidence that um, a lot of the transmission can be linked to after 10 p.m. And that's, that is just total nonsense that, you know, that this, that these additional measures like that, they just strike me as sort of like warning signs or this is something we can do. And, you know, it, it's an attempt to kind of pointing towards, I guess, more draconian restrictions that, that could be imposed. So what the assumption there is that people have what got a bit loose and then after 10, anything goes and they want to stop that. Well, I mean, the thing about, I mean, it's almost like if these people have ever been to a pub. So what you have, you have 11 o'clock close. Well, pro- probably, probably not. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. But, um, well, unless they were smashing it up. Yeah. So generally pubs have got, have got a closing time of 11 o'clock, but like it's not literally the pub shuts its doors at 11. You have a kind of last orders call and then you've probably got 10, 15 minutes to drink up before you get kicked out. What these rules do is impose at 10 o'clock so they have to shut the doors at 10 o'clock. So ultimately, everyone has to go to the doors at the same time. You, you wouldn't have a kind of natural, oh, no, I'm going home now, it's 11 o'clock. Oh, I might try to get an extra pint in, but I'm probably not going to leave within 30 seconds. This is going to be people, everyone going to the doors at the same time. It just doesn't seem to be kind of thought through. And I know this has been changed today, but the one thing I noticed yesterday was that these, these rules would have implied that, given there's an 8-15 kickoff between Liverpool and Arsenal on Monday, that people would have had to leave the pub at the, in the probably like the 88th minute of that. You know, I mean, they changed kickoff now. Yeah, right? I saw that. Yeah, it's five forty-five and eight now. But it struck me that that hadn't necessarily been kind of the Premier League respondent to that because of the TV rights, rather than really the government thinking that through. I think there's been uh, the caveats we introduced in Wales now that rather than shutting the doors at ten, it's the sale of alcohol has been stopped at ten. What's that idea? Yeah. Do you think pubs and restaurants have been like a vector of? Infection. I mean, it, it appears to me that it. I don't see how it, they couldn't be unless yeah. everything was always outside, but they no. haven't been outside. No, I mean, I think this is it. In the summer, you know, the, the, there was a, there was that sort of storm, Francis storm, whatever the E was, the one before Francis was. I can't remember. Apart from that time, there's been kind of reasonably good weather for the last yeah, yeah. month, and people have been kind of able to congregate outside. But yeah, I mean, I think I guess the sort of thing is that like not all pubs are the same thing. So you know, it's, if it's the question. There is this sort of like, you know, should I go to the pub? Should I not go to the pub? I guess it depends on what it is. I mean, I've been quite happy to sit. To be honest, I've been more than happy to sit in a kind of, you know, half full pub that's got good ventilation. And ultimately, I agree, I am not giving out public health messaging here. But from my point of view, I've judged that to be a completely acceptable risk. I think the other thing that kind of needs to be remembered about this, and possibly we can talk about it with regard to students, is that, you know, if people don't go to the pub, well, what do they do? You know, it, it, you have to think about what the kind of like counterfactual is here. So if you shut the pub at 10 o'clock, are people just going to go around the mate's house after that? Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, is that what's going to happen? That when you impose these restrictions, you have to, people kind of respond to them in a behavioural way. I don't want to sound too much like an economist there, but, you know, if people do respond to kind of like rules, to incentives or whatever you think. And so, for instance, if you're going to shut the pub at 10 o'clock, right, a lot of people at the moment are working at home. You know, ultimately, I mean, if my boss is listening, I can start, I can start an hour early and, like, and, and, you know, finish work an hour earlier. If I want to, basically, if I, what I want to do was to go to the pub for five hours, I can finish an hour earlier and go to the pub for the same amount of time. You know, it, it's, it's thinking about what these kind of behavioural responses are going to be. And I think similarly, I'm a kind of like, you know, just talking about the really needing to kind of think through the consequences of your actions, really, that... So football games, people not being allowed to go to football games. There's obvious problems with the concourse. There's obvious problems with things like that. But, I mean, are people, all the Premier League games are on TV now. Are people just congregating in pubs? And yeah. are you going to stop people from cheering in a pub? Are all pubs going to be as ventilated as a football ground? I don't really know. I don't really know what the what the kind of, you know, what the impact of this really is. 
similarly with students going to universities i know there's been a lot of kind of concern about you know lots of students traveling from all over the country turning up at university uh and you know infecting each other with with coronavirus and you know perhaps but also and again this is not me saying it's a good idea that students are back at university but this has been seen as a kind of singular bad thing well what you've got to remember is if these students don't stop having contacts, if they don't go to university, they're still going to see the mates at home. They're probably also going to see their elderly grandparents, their parents. They're probably going to have a lot more kind of dangerous contacts. It's not obvious to me from a public health point of view, and this is saying nothing about whether face-to-face teaching is a good idea, that it might not actually be better for students from a public health point of view to be at university. Again, I don't know what the answer is here. I think it's this is the thing that the evidence on quite a lot of these things is really weak. And I think there's a real danger of sort of responding with kind of outrage at a sort of perceived obvious error that's been made when we really need to think about what the kind of, you know, what the options truly are. Like if we don't do something and do something else, what is the outcome that results from that? What's also been back in the news, and this is something you've spoken about on Twitter as well, is the R number. Uh, now, obviously, well, anyone who listens to this show will know that I obviously lost my shit completely about COVID in a, you know, in a way that I think a lot of people did. The, the R number was one of the things, you know, we obsessively were like reading about. It was thrown out like if the R number goes over one, yep. then, you know, we're basically all going to die. That's not back in the news. I seen you essentially write something about the R number, which sort of picked it apart or set out, you know, contextualize it rather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can, can you just go over that first? So if, if we're dealing with the, the R number, it's something that can only really be estimated with uncertainty. So while we might say, well, OK, uh, it's 1.1, but actually it might be between, you know, they'll have a kind of 95% confidence or credible uh, interval that says it's between 0.9 and 1.3. It's something that can only ever be really estimated with kind of uh, with uncertainty. Now, generally, really, because we can because we can only really work with the data that we've got, what we really want to be kind of looking at is things like, the trends in deaths or the trends in hospitalizations or the trends in the kind of infections that are estimated by the office for national statistics ultimately what the r number is telling us is if you look at the recent trends are they going up or are they going down if the number of deaths every week is going down then the r number is estimated using that less than one if the number of infections this week was less than the number of infections last week the r number is less than one I think there's a real danger kind of like obsessing about the R number when really what, what we can do is look at look at a line and see is it going up or is it going down? Well if it's going if it's going up then that's bad. If it's going down then that's good. If it's going up at a really, really rapid pace, then that's really bad. You know, it, it's I know it sounds like a kind of like, you know, um kind of Goldilocks story almost, but it sort of is that. That you know, that we don't that, that there's no point really complicating this and talking about the R number when we can kind of see looking at a graph. Well, okay. If cases are doubling every every seven days this week, that's bad, and that's worse than if they were doubling every every fourteen days. So ultimately, what you really want to look at is sort of trends in that data and trying to think about it in a more intuitive way than this sort of abstract R number. Because ultimately, what the R number is telling you is what happened in the last week to the trend in cases, but in really kind of abstract and I think non-intuitive way. Basically, what you want to be doing really is looking at the recent trends in yeah. things like. Um, hospitalizations in deaths and in the uh, infection survey yeah i mean the other thing i've been looking at and when you try to try and you know haven't given up on listening to government advice in a, in a way trying to base it all on what we know about how viruses work and how transmission yeah. works what i've been sort of doing is like we're looking at i guess cases in cardiff and trying to work out you know it basically is it yeah is it in the community and is it being transmitted it seems that's to me basically mm-hmm. cutting through the bullshit was like well am i likely to basically yeah yeah get it now or other people i'm interacting with in work for example are they 
likely to have come in contact with it. I mean, I don't know how the tracing system is really working. So, you know, just on, just on that point about the kind of like local picture, I mean, I think one thing, one problem that we've really got at the moment is obviously the, you know, the, the well-documented kind of national problems with testing really mean that those case numbers are really very difficult to interpret. That, yeah. you know, if we had a kind of consistent strategy around this, would be able to kind of would be able to work out right our case numbers rising but because we had this sort of unspecified and not very well kind of um, explained problems with testing we don't really know what the impact on case numbers was of that so trying to look at like local case numbers is, is a bit tricky in that regard to get an idea of local patterns just well one more thing briefly on that actually is that because this, this is massively subject to sort of local testing patterns so in the northwest in, in Manchester, for instance, the case fatality rate is something like, for the last three weeks, I estimate it was something like 0.45%, 0.5% or something like that. Whereas there's other parts of the country where that's maybe 5%. Now, what that suggests to me really is that some places are having absolutely loads of testing done and some places aren't having so much. There'll be some random variation there, but ultimately these big differences are going to be in large part driven by kind of differences in testing strategy. So looking at kind of case numbers, local case numbers or national case numbers becomes very, very difficult to interpret. Could that also be like in one area, it, it's become a community transmission within you know, the elderly population? So, so yeah, I mean, absolutely that, you know, that the kind of case fatality rate is a sort of function of how much you test and also of the, the groups that you're testing. So, yeah, I mean, it could be the case that if you've got, for instance, a care home outbreak, that is going to show up in the statistics and make it look like, you know a high proportion of the general population are, are are dying when for instance that could be you know a subset it could even be a kind of geographical subset of the area so in quite a lot of cases what we've seen is in, in poorer areas less affluent areas let's say that there's been a lot more um of community transmission of, of local yeah. transmission have been kind of concentrated in these areas and again i mean i think this sort of speaks to what we're saying before about the kind of long-term aspects of it you know really kind of run down housing overcrowded housing problems like this are kind of now being seen in the kind of pandemic outcomes also the feckless poor drinking together <laughs> in the houses uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's so important though, to have that home that the fact that the lockdown and the crisis has been defined by class you know looking at the, yeah. the welsh statistics you know again it's it's clustering in the most deprived parts of wales it's also presumably to do with the fact that people in these areas are the these are the key workers these are people who are underpaid and forced to work yeah, yeah. being exposed to the virus yeah we're coming to the end now, Dan, but if we look back on the, the British approach in a comparative sense, and maybe to, after that we'll talk about like long-term prognosis, but looking back, I mean, how would you characterise the British approach compared to, you know, other European yeah. countries? And, it, you know, if, if you if you were in charge, like, what would you have done, for example? I mean, yeah, okay, it's a difficult question. It's a difficult question to get into exactly what, exactly what I would have done. I mean, what I can say, I suppose, is that, you know, to say you know what what has the british approach been it's a really difficult it's a really really difficult question to answer because there's just been it just seems to have been these constant screeching u-turns we've got again i mean i think i know i've kind of i've said it about five times now let's go back to march and april what all of the stated policies were we're not going to suppress this virus too far we're going to allow it to spread we're going to protect the vulnerable we're going to have a single sort of set of fairly light touch restrictions that people can keep up with we're going to make sure that what whatever we do and again this is i think something that's been massively missed and hardly anyone has talked about it we're going to try to have our policy which is guided towards avoiding a second spike in autumn well i mean we're coming into autumn now and you know i don't know if these people in government are kind of having a look at the statistics now that that has happened that you know that 
it's it's almost impossible to talk about what the British approach to this has been because the, there hasn't been a single one. And it's not it's not just that there's been slight changes along the way that it's not even that there's been massive U-turns along the way. It's just been the entire chaos that has surrounded this. There's been, you know, collapse of test and trace. There's been these constant sort of promises of a kind of, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson was saying we can save summer or whatever. It's, we, can, we can be, everyone can be fine. We can forget about coronavirus. Now he's saying we're trying to save Christmas. There's always this kind of like promise of a sort of, of a kind of one cool trick, which is going to come up and we'll sort it, whether it's test and trace, whether it's having this, absolutely unbelievable you know 100 billion moon operation moonshot which i'm convinced we'll never hear a single word about again the british approach has been the conservative party covering their own back you know i think it, it almost it almost doesn't make sense to talk about the approach to the pandemic as being anything other than that this has just all been about kind of government by like basically by the conservative party doing what the conservative party do I mean, yeah. yeah, it seems as if you know, the, the crisis, you know, the pandemic is is basically drawn out to the surface, you know, yeah. all the, like the absolutely rotten, like disgusting elements of British society and yeah. culture. And, you know, the Tory party in particular, you know, you've got like stinking corruption, you know, yeah. deals being given to clearly Tory cronies <laughs> and Tory donors, um, which is just like so, just out in the open. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've got. Boris just mm. disappearing for like weeks on end. Cummins flouting the rules. Boris's dad going to Greece. You know, mm. just absolutely like absolute laughing and laughing mm. in people's faces, basically. And in and in, throughout, obviously, the British media, you know, defending the government from 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 everyone, from from the people. It's kind of like I don't know. It's like the id or, or whatever is coming yeah, to the yeah, surface. Yeah. So I, I guess I know I know that was sort of me uh, kind of like avoiding the question almost and saying that you know that the, um, the to talk about the kind of specifics I suppose of the kind of contrasts that you know there has been. So there's this initial herd immunity policy, then we'll have a lockdown, and then we'll have a, maybe a slight relaxation of restrictions, and now okay, oh there's a bit of transmission. There's well, sorry, not a bit, quite quite a lot of transmission now. So so we're going to take these extreme measures so there's been this kind of constant sort of switching of things i guess the british government isn't completely an outlier in that respect there has been quite a lot of change in other places you know that in terms of the imposition of lockdown that sort of happened in uh, you know happened in most european countries really probably apart from the case of sweden i suppose sweden is the one place the one sort of obvious kind of contrast with everywhere really because basically the you know the approach there i suppose has been what the initial british approach was going to be to a large extent I suppose the the difference is here that it wasn't kind of led by Boris Johnson and it wasn't led by the Conservative Party. Because I think if we think about the kind of giving out of public health advice and thinking about messaging, all that kind of rests on the credibility of the person who's doing it. Now, Boris Johnson is someone I think who, you know, the FBPA law or liberals or whatever really struggled to come to, come to terms with because they seem to think that, you know, pointing out or Boris Johnson has been a hypocrite. Boris Johnson has been a liar. Boris Johnson has, I don't know, like cheated on his wife or whatever. Finding these sort of like moral failings or these, you know, failures to play by the rules or, you know, he's prorogued Parliament. Well, it's over for Boris now. Well, you know, his entire shtick is doing this. So I'm not saying, I'm not kind of, I'm not sort of, again, waving a waggy finger at Boris Johnson and saying, oh, sorry, sir, you can't do that. I'm just naming what he is because he is a liar and he is a hypocrite. And he is a clown, and that's his act. And some people like it. Some people like that. That is a large part of his appeal for a lot of people. Yeah. Now, whatever you think of that, it interacts very badly with trying to give out public health advice during a pandemic. How can you possibly take seriously someone who not only has no credibility, but kind of makes a sort of play of that 
Yeah. You know, that that gets the Conservative Party to do this fact check UK thing on Twitter. You know, this this deliberate kind of blurring the lines, kind of like disintegration of reality almost. That they're kind of dealing. How can anyone possibly take those people seriously? So when you think about, you know, the Swedish policy, was that ever kind of possible here? Would it have been desirable? Well, kind of leaving the question of desirability to one side, it's such a kind of lack of trust, um, such a lack of credibility and such a kind of play made of this lack of credibility, of this hypocrisy, of this, you know, clownishness or whatever. I'm not even sure that 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 was ever possible. But anyway, to talk about the kind of Swedish strategy, that was essentially the the British strategy, except led by, I guess, Tegnell, Anders Tegnell, the the state epidemiologist who, you know, had this kind of high level of trust within society. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's why Sweden is a kind of interesting contrast, because not only did they adopt a different policy, not only at the moment have they got pretty much, well, you know, an average of one or two deaths a day, perhaps, maybe actually with case numbers slightly rising at the moment, but while there's a kind of contrast in terms of the outcomes that they've had and the approach they've taken, there's also such a contrast in terms of, you know, the person who was responsible for it. It seems, I mean, we can maybe this is wrong, but it seemed like, you know, during August where things were going back to the, we yeah. were going back to the pub and, OK, we were sitting outside. I was thinking, well, this might have been the ideal strategy in an ideal world. You know, you shield the vulnerable and basically let people go ahead with consistent public health messaging and like you said you know keep it confined to young people if it is in a community at all but as you said obviously almost like living in an alternative reality for a while where you know when it was sort of being suppressed you yeah. think well maybe we could have done this from the start if you just shielded the vulnerable but yeah i mean i think i think one thing that really is worth kind of taking seriously on this is you know and as much as i've said oh you know boris johnson says you know we'll save christmas we'll have operation moonshot we'll have these promises of a kind of test and trace system that will solve everything quite a lot seems to be sort of premised upon a kind of vaccine coming very soon or you know that because ultimately there are two ways in which people can become immune for however long i'm not going to get into that you know what the you know length of immunity is the sort of terrible world health organization statements on this but you know the ways in which people are going to kind of become immune for what however long is either by being infected or by a vaccine being developed and being reliable and being safe and being given out you know if we don't take seriously the fact that we have not eliminated this virus it's not going to happen anytime soon. But we also, best case scenario, which I think is very, very much a best case scenario, people talk about the vaccine arriving in the spring. It's very important, I think, to kind of live in, to ensure that we don't kind of live in a kind of denial about this, that some people are going to be infected. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson, or, you know, many of your loved ones will die. You know, that might sound like I'm saying that. No, I think it's important to kind of appreciate that people are going to get infected. I think there's been a lot of kind of wishful thinking on this, which is totally understandable. And I can totally understand people being scared. I can totally understand this. But also, we do need to kind of take this seriously. And accepting that some people are going to become infected means that we do need to sort of manage this. We do need to, you know, at whatever level of transmission, whether we suppress it or whatever, that we ensure that those people who do get infected are those who are least likely to have a really bad outcome. Because that was the problem in March and April. The, The problem was care homes being full of this the problem was lots of lots of old people getting this so that kind of protection of people who are in vulnerable groups people who are older is really important just to give it one i guess final kind of point on that the principal of st andrews told their students to stay in to isolate for the entire weekend now maybe st andrews is a bit of an outlier it's a small place if you've got loads of students turn up i can totally say that could be a problem but also in as much as we're seeing protect the vulnerable there also has to be 
a kind of recognition, I think, that these are kind of relative things that ultimately people are going to become immune. People, people are going to become infected and, and as a result of that become immune. That this is a kind of relative thing that trying to kind of isolate and protect young people basically means if we have a kind of constant spread among the rest of the population, yeah. if we kind of equalise population risk by saying, well, everybody gets locked up or everybody, everybody gets locked down, or even worse, if we say students have to stay indoors. Yeah. There's real kind of implications there for who actually ends up dying. What yeah. you end up with is potentially at least concentrating infections in the old and actually killing more people that, you know, actually accepting that people are going to be infected by this is a really kind of important starting point. This, is, this isn't saying, oh, let the virus rip, let's have herd immunity tomorrow, let's just, let's just let everyone get infected. It's, it's ensuring that the outcomes from this are as kind of less bad as they, could, as they can possibly be. One thing that I think, and it's worth saying one more thing, I think, about austerity, is that austerity was seen as, a, or was spun rather by the government as this kind of essential thing. There is no avoiding austerity. We have to do this. We have to get the public finances in order. And so what if 100,000 people die? There is a kind of counterpart of that, I think, that, you know, people have quite rightly rumbled that as just bollocks, as bullshit from, from from the government that, you know, there was actually a choice there. We didn't have to do it. Now, there's obviously policy choices to be made here, but a pandemic has absolutely no good outcomes whatsoever. What we have here is an infectious disease, which is going to kill people if they get it. It's going to disproportionately kill all the people if they get it. This is something with no good outcomes. You know, if we, if we suppress this, there's going to be horrendous mental health outcomes. If we lock all the people up, they're going to become older and frailer. They're going to become depressed because they don't see their, their families, their friends, their, you know, their, uh, their kind of like loved ones. Every decision that we make here has horrendous costs. And it's important, I think, when we talk about the costs of one decision to not kind of forget about the, the kind of costs that we do, the, the costs that we impose by having things like lockdown whether that's, you know, people not being able to see their friends, people's mental health being affected, people having declining physical health. Again, we need to remember that, you know, quite a lot of the problems that, quite a lot of the risk factors rather for really bad outcomes in coronavirus are kind of things related to inactivity, so higher blood pressure, diabetes, etc. Yeah, that, you know, we do need to make sure that things that we do aren't completely centred around coronavirus, that they are centred around kind of, you know, health outcomes and kind of like outcomes more broadly. Um, it's really important, I think, to say that, you know, pandemic has no good outcomes and every decision that we have is horrible and has horrible, horrendous costs. Well, on that happy <laughs> note, um, <laughs> I, think we, I think we've covered everything. Mate. One of the things I was thinking is, you know, uh, and it's been, I guess, a, a fairly shameful characteristic. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think a lot of people have had it is that, um, you know, I've become aware of like, you know, maybe my own like solipsism and, and it, but it manifests itself with, you know, Gallagher's and Ian Brown's you know, an inability to think about how mm-hmm. it's like a public health issue and like, you know, wearing a mask, for example, isn't about you. That's like an interesting thing yeah. to, that, that was one of the things I've been sort of ruminating on is that when I think, oh, I don't want to go out to pub or whatever, it's all about like, well, I don't want to get it. Yeah. Um, whereas another way of thinking about it is like all, all your behavior should be governed by, I don't want to give it to my relatives or I don't want to give it to people I work with or for example, yeah. And that might need to change, I think, um, in just how we approach, in how we approach it. And I certainly think that that has informed like a lot of the panic. Well, that's that, that's me thinking out loud, I guess. Anyway, is there anyone, anything else we haven't covered, Dan, that you would like to talk about? Anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? Anyone you'd like to start a beef with? 
No, I, uh, I think I think as we discussed before we start recording, I'm very professional now with my uh, with yeah, my exactly. Yeah. There's been yeah. a, a, a change of. I'd like to I'd like to express my undying respect for, you know, the uh, the coalition cabinet, etc. Yeah. You know, nothing but nothing but respect uh, for those Lord Lamb. legends make, making tough decisions. Anyway, <laughs> top man. Schmeez, <sighs> what's with the schmiffling? It's nothing, just a common cold. What the hell's a common cold? Is it valuable? Could it be taken from you if you were, say, unconscious? A a common cold? No, no! Ever since Fry first came to us, I've lived in mortal terror that this would happen. I never heard you mention that. Oh, I try to act cool, but inside I'm freaking out. It's just a cold. (laughs) What's the big deal? An unknown pathogen has been detected on these premises. Come out with your hands. I mean, stay in with your hands up. You are hereby quarantined until such time as it is deemed safe to enter and shoot your asses. (gasps) Now, now, let's not all panic at once. We'll have to take shifts. Hermes, you take the first six hours. Very well. 